Ladies and gentlemen, if I can have your attention, please, good morning. We are um, fully subscribed for this seminar, although you wouldn't know it yet. So it may well be that people come through during the course of uh, the event, but we want to kick off in order that we are uh, keeping to time. Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Paul Woolley. I'm uh, Executive Director of Charity at Bible Society, and it's a real pleasure to welcome you to this seminar, which is looking at the role of the scriptures in shaping 21st century Britain. In a recent poll, 55% of the adult population of England and Wales said they never read the Bible. And yet, we're also in a situation where leading writers, historians, politicians, journalists, artists, and scientists, as we've heard this morning, frequently state that you cannot begin to understand Britain, British culture, the arts, music, literature, language, politics, etc., etc., without an appreciation of the scriptures and the roles that the scriptures had in forming the culture that we are part of today in 2013. So the question is, how have the scriptures shaped the culture that we're part of? How might they continue to do so in the 21st century? And how can appreciating these connections help people rediscover the value of the Bible. Is that something that is possible? Is it desirable? Well, joining me to consider these really interesting questions is a very distinguished panel. I'm delighted to be able to welcome them this morning. Christina Odoni is a columnist, a blogger for the Daily Telegraph. She's written two pamphlets for the Center for Policy Studies as a research fellow, Faith Schools and Assisted Suicide. She's on the advisory panel for the Faculty of Theology and Religion at Oxford University. She was editor of the Catholic Herald, 1991 to uh, 1995, deputy editor of the New Statesman. She's been a columnist for The Observer and The Guardian. Uh, immediately to my right is uh, Dr. Matthew Ngelke. Uh, Dr. Ngelke teaches anthropology at the London School of Economics. Over the past two decades, he's conducted fieldwork on religion and culture in Zimbabwe and also here in the UK, often with a focus on the Bible and its social life. He is author of two books and numerous scholarly articles, including, and let me give a big plug for this book, God's Agents, Biblical Publicity in Contemporary England. And it is a study that focuses on the work of Bible society here in England and Wales. For a short time, I was one of the tribe that Matthew observed as an anthropologist. It was an interesting experience for both of us. Um, on my far right is Professor Michael Simmons-Robert. Uh, Michael is a poet and a composer. His poetry has won the Whitbread Poetry Award. He's received major awards from the Arts Council and the Society of Authors. His continuing collaboration with the composer James Macmillan has led to two BBC proms, choral commissions, song cycles, music theatre works, and operas for the Royal Opera House. Ladies and gentlemen, please would you give a very warm welcome to our panel. Well, the process this morning is that each member of the panel is going to be given the opportunity to speak for about 10 minutes to offer their thoughts on the subject through the lens of their own particular discipline. Uh, then I'll have a, a few um, opportunities to engage with them before opening up the discussion to the floor. I hope that you will um, be thinking of, of questions and comments and responses yourself as we hear what the panel have to say. Um, but I'm going to invite Christina Adoni to kick us off. Christina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Diego Morgado. Now, I suspect not many of you know who Diego Morgado is, so I'm going to tell you. He's Portuguese, he's the son of a fisherman, and he's one of the hottest properties in Hollywood today. What makes Diego such a hit? He's gorgeous, he's young, and he played Jesus. He played Jesus in a record-breaking television series called The Bible. It was broadcast earlier this year by the History Channel, and it broke every record in American television history. 13 million people tuned in every week to watch The Garden of Eden, The Tower of Babel, 
the ministry of Jesus, his passion. In fact, at, at one point, Diego Morgado was so big that T-shirts with his face on it outsold Justin Bieber, which I can tell you, as the mother of a 10-year-old, is saying something. But who needs Justin Bieber when you can have Jesus in sandals? <laughs> of course, the Bible as a television series was the greatest hits of the, book, of the good book. And lots of critics and lots of cynics turned their noses up and said, mm, this is the Bible light. But how lovely to see the atheists squirm. They were turning pews. They were gnashing their teeth as week after week, millions and millions were tuning in to look at how mystery triumphed over materialism and how spirituality was more important than the here and now and how there was divine authority, eternal verities, and a resurrection. As they tuned in, <clears throat> of course, one of the great appeals was this incredible glimpse of eternal life, of eternal truths, of, of eternal morality. But part of the appeal, of course, was the Bible as a saga, a kind of Middle Eastern dawn of time, the archers. Plenty of violence, plenty of blood, greed, revenge, sex, sex, sex. The Bible appeals so much. It's such a, a kind of hit that after watching a few weeks' worth, I thought, so if it's so great, if it is so palpably still drawing in the millions, why have we become illiterates in this glorious language? <coughs> why is it that we had to have that arch-atheist, Richard Dawkins, plead with Britons to know at least the basics of the book about the good fairy in the sky? Why did I get phone calls? And I'm, I'm sorry to say, because Michael used to be at the BBC, and this is no, um, no slight here, but- Not for I, 10 years, Christopher. Not for 10 years. Um, he's seen the light. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I regularly would get phone calls from BBC producers, and they would say something like, so Christina, as a Catholic, you're obviously a creationist. And as a creationist, you're obviously thinking of placing Darwin in one of the circles of hell. Why is it that a poll undertaken by Christian researchers in 2010 found that only 39% of us have a Bible in our home? Why is it that 60% of people asked in 2009 about the prodigal son had no idea what the story was about? Well, it's our fault. We Christians are to blame. We've become smug, we've become slack. And we have allowed our enemies to set the agenda. And that agenda, unfortunately, is one in which they have no role for us. Now I'm going to tell you stories that are not so uplifting and that are not so glorious. I'm going to tell you about a woman who worked as a community nurse in North Somerset and who, because she dared to pray for an elderly patient on one of her rounds, was suspended from her job. I'm going to tell you about an employee who was sacked because she dared wear a cross to work. I'm going to tell you about a Devon counselor who has sued his council because they dared begin their meetings with a prayer. He claimed that as an atheist, he was being discriminated against. Is it any wonder that two-thirds of Christians in Britain today 
feel that they're being persecuted. Now, I know that persecution is a strong word and that the, the, the fate, the plight of Christians in Britain today is nothing in comparison to what their brethren in Syria, in Egypt, and in other corners of the world face. It is not to belittle them that I would say we must listen to two-thirds of Christians who feel that because of their faith, they're being victimized in their homeland. So what do we do? I think it's time to act. I think it's time to stop turning the other cheek. We're here in the heart of government, in a place where decisions can be made and implemented. And I think we have to start at the very beginning. We have to start at school. I think it's wonderful that we have comparative religions as part of RE. I'm very pleased that my daughter knows what Diwali is. I'm very happy that she knows when Passover is and that she knows to take off her shoes in a mosque. But unless she knows the bedrock of her own faith, which is the great universal legacy of this country, unless she knows her Bible stories, unless she knows what the Ten Commandments are, what is she comparing? She cannot compare because she does not know <coughs> what the core of her faith is about. As Dr. John Lennox said earlier today, we have room for atheism in this country. Let's now make room for God. And let's start with our RE in every school, in the land. Let everybody learn about the good book. Because once they do, even the hairy charms of Justin Bieber and Diego Dormago will pale in insignificance. Thank you so much. I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Matthew Ngelke to speak to us now on the subject. Matthew. Uh, thank you, Paul. Um, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. This is my uh, third time at the prayer breakfast. I think it's... Um, it's been the most enjoyable, not only because I get to speak rather than uh, take notes in a notebook like an anthropologist, but uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this morning, as I'm sure you all did. And, and thanks to Christina for getting us going. Um, I th I'm, I'm going to take a slightly different tack um, to Christina uh, and set out uh, a position not from uh, a, 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 from from. Uh, a Catholic standpoint, or, or in fact even a Christian standpoint, but from an anthropological standpoint. And I'd like to tell you a bit about uh, how the research that I've been doing over the past 20 years might reflect on some of the issues to do with scripture in the 21st century. Um, I've done research, as Paul said, both in Africa and now in, in Britain on the relationship between uh, Bible and the wider society. And I think the biggest question uh, in, in both contexts is the question of culture. Uh, and I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about that. Exactly how it gets posed in Africa and in the UK uh, is very different. Um, but it's nevertheless the same question. The question of culture is what I'm going to suggest to you is at the core of how we should understand scripture in the 21st century or how it is being understood. Now, I think in Britain, the question of culture can be asked in three ways. Um, now, the baseline starting point is that this is, of course, uh, the Bible is a book of world historical importance. Uh, as Christina mentioned, even Richard Dawkins uh, thinks that the Bible is a book of world historical importance. There aren't many people uh, who wouldn't say as much question, of course, is how and in what way is it a book of world historical importance? Now, I think we've heard a lot about Dawkins uh, this morning. And I think uh, for me as an anthropologist, what is so interesting is that a national prayer breakfast could, in a sense, and I want to throw this out as a provocation, 
to, to you all and to the other panelists. For me, as an observer of society, what is so interesting is that a prayer breakfast could, in a sense, be organized around a set of issues being raised by the new atheists. Right? And that is, I think, indicative of the extent to which this kind of discourse, this kind of argument, has become <coughs> important. Right? Now, I want to suggest to you, however, that Richard Dawkins is not and has not been the most important other for Christians over the past decade, or in fact, slightly, well, no, a, a, a little bit longer than a decade. The most important other is not Richard Dawkins. The most important other is Alistair Campbell. What? Alistair Campbell. <laughs> we don't do God. Over the past decade, in my studies of Christians, and indeed I've gone on to study humanists after studying the Christians, because the Christians talk so much about the humanists that I thought, well, I should go see what the humanists are up to. Everyone is talking not about Campbell himself, but that phrase, doing God. In fact, that's what John Lennox ended with today. You heard the entire course of his critique of uh, new atheism ended with Campbell, a pro-faith atheist, as he calls himself. But that phrase, we don't do God, has, in my observations over the past decade, shaped many of the ways in which Christians and others have tried to understand the relationship between religion and society. And that is, what role should religion play in public life? When we want to talk about public life, I want to suggest to you, we need to talk about culture. Right? So that gets me to the three main ways in which we can talk about the question of culture. The first concerns what we might call the culture of consumption. Right? And I mean that partly in relation to how we might understand it in, in terms of the market, right? in terms of our, our, uh, our, our investment and predisposition towards materialism, right? We understand ourselves to be a materialistic society. I want to understand it partly in those terms, partly also in terms of uh, the fact that we live in such a media-saturated world, right? In which, uh, you know, as a, as a university lecturer, um, uh, you know, you can't get a, a student to read a 30-page essay, much less a 700,000-word book, uh, how are we going to get people to read such an incredibly long book? And, and in some of the fo focus group research that I did, of course, this is something that, that came up. You know, you got to be kidding me. Put some pictures in it. That's what, that's what people said. Put some pictures in it. Um, but this is a real issue of, 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 and this is what I mean by consumption, right? One of the main questions, I think, for Christians interested in uh, understanding how the Bible should be situated within society has to do with consumption in those senses. How does the Bible get taken up? How does it circulate? Now, the second concerns what I uh, would call the culture of the church. What role should scripture play in and for the church and in and for the relationship between what many of the people I got to know in my research would call uh, the relationship between kingdom and Christendom. Right? How should we understand this kind of relationship? I was very struck in my research by the extent to which Christians talk about a church culture divide. Right? This is a language which is incredibly influential within Christian activism today, to talk about the church and to talk about the culture as if those two things were separate. Right? as if they were distinct. Right? Now, of course, Paul mentioned that 55% of the population uh, in, in a recent Bible Society poll said they never read the Bible. Of course, you could flip that around and say, well, that means 45% have. Now, the question is, are those the 45%, uh, are those 45% all Christians? Right? And what would be the answer if you were to ask an average congregation? In fact, what I found in my research was uh, you know, a, a real concern over the extent to which not just the general population, but Christians don't read the Bible. Right? Right? 
Now, there is a question to be posed, why should they read the Bible? I was very interested to hear the Catholic perspective. I mean, the Catholic Church, the last time I looked, has not always been uh, you know, the, 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 the most fervent advocate of the Bible as such as the key to an understanding of faith. So this is, I think, a very interesting. We are, I think, especially since Vatican II, but even more recently, uh, and certainly in my experience in Africa, it's very, very different. But in fact, um, why should you know why should the Bible be understood as the key as opposed to uh, tradition, or indeed as opposed to stained glass windows, which is how throughout history of uh, European Christendom many people came to understand the Bible. Right? If you were to ask uh, you know French peasants in the 17th century. 45% uh, haven't read the Bible, that would have been a heck of a success. Right? So uh, the question that I would want to pose uh, to, to, to you all is, is how we should understand these figures in relation to the culture of the church. And the third, and, and what I'll end with, has to do with what might sound a bit glib, but I think is very important, the culture of the culture. Right? Because again, if uh, Christians interested in public engagement talk about one thing, it is that church culture split. And by this I mean, of course, the culture, I mean society at large, the unchurched or the man on the street, right? This was often, it was often put as the man on the street. I'm not sure where the woman went, but it was often the man on the street who became the, the, the imagined interlocutor for the people who I studied. How can we get the man on the street to take this book seriously, right? How can, and should the Bible be understood in a secular register, right? as a cultural text? Again, no one, even Richard Dawkins and probably Alistair Campbell, would want to deny the Bible's importance as a cultural text. Right? The question, I think, and the challenge for Christians is what counts as being biblical, not simply cultural. Does the fact that we can trace or index biblical narratives in high art and pop culture alike, and this is maybe a wonderful segue into what Michael might be talking about, uh, uh, does this mean that the Bible is getting its due? Right? I think this is one of the questions that I saw the people I was studying uh, wrestle with. And exactly how far should the cultural envelope be pushed this is the real challenge, because as soon as you start, and this is where Alistair Campbell comes back in, right? Doing God in public is very difficult because that man on the street switches off. If you start talking about Jesus, forget about it. Forget about it. They will automatically switch off, right? So what I, the, you know, the people I studied, people like this, right? Mm -hmm. I measured his brain. I did all sorts of <laughs> anthropological <laughs> investigations. Um, the people I studied wanted, and I suspect many of you, are trying to find the line in the ways that you can talk that will be productively Christian and productively cultural, right? And what I found in my book, which is coming out in November, that you can all, I'm sure, by, uh, it is a very, very difficult challenge. And perhaps some of you in this room, perhaps some of you want to say, look, we should stop talking about culture. Stuff the secular register. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's not give in to the logic of the Enlightenment. Let's not even accept the terms of the debate as they were set out in this morning's prayer breakfast. Let's not engage in this liberal talk of a separation of public and private, right? So these are the kinds of issues that I think are facing the question of culture and the relevance of scripture in the 21st century. Thank you. Matthew, thank you very much. Uh, Christina and Matthew have got us off to a great start. They're pressing all the buttons, and I'm itching to ask some questions. So we've heard from a journalist, uh, a writer and journalist. We've heard from a, an, acad an academic, an anthropologist, but it's now time for a poet and composer, Michael Simmons-Roberts. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you. 
I'm not actually a composer, but I work with composers. Librettists. My apologies. Uh, yeah, no, no, no problem. Um, good morning. Thank you for, for coming. It's a pleasure to share this, this <coughs> panel with Christina and Matthew. Um, my perspective is, uh, as a poet and a teacher of poetry, a university teacher of poetry, um, and I think in that sense, uh, looking at the Bible, you have to look in two directions. The first, which I'm going to talk, touch on briefly, um, is historical. This, the presupposition behind this, this panel, I think the thing that we've all been talking about really is the collapse of common biblical literacy. Um, this is a huge issue for uh, st the study of English literature. Um, how do you read Milton, John Donne, George mm -hmm. Herbert, mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon, Middle English literature, even Shakespeare, 20th century figures like T.S. Eliot, how do you teach them and how do you read them? when there's been a widespread collapse of biblical literacy. Um, the university I teach at has struggled with this, and at one stage had a, a course called Words and the Word, which was given to all incoming undergraduates as a sort of primer to give them the basics of biblical literacy in, in order to be able to read the, 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 the texts, the great texts of the past. <coughs> uh, Leeds University has just introduced one in their English department. Uh, some students are resistant to it, but they, um, they realize how essential it is once they uh, try to engage with these texts. Um, Geoffrey Hill, great contemporary poet, currently um, professor of poetry at Oxford, um, in, in one of his poems, talked about Britain as a nation full of memorials but no memory. Mm. And um, the sense in which uh, the, 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 the slippage of a, a kind of biblical understanding and, and the Bible as a means of understanding the history of English literature, I think, is part of what has delivered us into the state or is delivering us into the state of being a nation full of memorials but no memory. That's the historical angle. There's also a contemporary angle. And here, um, the collapse of biblical literacy has another set of challenges. And this is really not so much for teachers of... Um, poetry and literature, but writers. Um, any writer now who wants to explore ideas about the transcendent or the numinous, uh, I struggle even to find the terms for that. Words like spirituality now seem to mean so little. Mm. Um, how do you do that when the common significance of religious language has collapsed? This is not a new question. Uh, Fifty years ago, the Anglo-Welsh poet and artist David Jones, uh, a great early modernist poet, um, talked about the examples of the words wood and water. He said that a poet could no longer, this is 50 years ago, use the word wood in a poem and assume that readers would pick up any intended reference to the cross. Likewise with water and baptism or the flood. Now Jones himself pointed out many readers, even in the 1950s, may welcome the severing of the link between the English language and Christian iconography. But poets shouldn't, he said. Atheist, agnostic, or believer, all should, Jones argued, feel a sense of loss when our language gets thinner. Mm. He wasn't suggesting that baptism or the cross should necessarily be the primary reference for water or wood, but that they should keep a place among the connotations and that something critical is lost when that place is lost. Jones saw the early stages of what Seamus Heaney has since called the big lightning, the emptying out of our religious language which maps through into our poetic language. But even he, may, even Jones may have been shocked by the pace of this. He saw the English language littered with dying signs and symbols, specifically the signs and symbols associated with our Judeo-Christian past. But if Jones was right about the loss of a shared symbolic language, he may have been surprised by other aspects of our interesting times. For a start, this debate should be over. The Enlightenment project was meant to see off religion by now, but instead, many sociologists argue, as we've heard today and been discussing, that it's, it's secularism that's in retreat, certainly in a, a worldwide perspective. People in the West may not be returning to organized religion, but they seem to be losing faith in organized secularism too. Was David Jones half right? Is our language drained of religious significance, but our yearning for the metaphysical or religious, again, I struggle for the term, as strong as ever? Has our language become more secular than we are? If there are opportunities, as I believe there are, for poets and novelists and playwrights in this post-secular age, 
How are they to be seized? There are many strategies. One is to take up the American poet William Carlos Williams' famous maxim, no ideas but in things. For most contemporary poets, this is second nature. A poetry rooted in the concrete detail of shared experience can certainly express something of our shared religious longings and experiences. For me, the body is a kind of common ground. And in addition to its commonality, it reaches into other rich areas of our culture, including genetics and bioethics. The body feels like particularly interesting and contested ground at the moment, because as a culture, we don't know if we want to worship mm. or deny it, subdue it or preserve it forever. Of course, truth needn't be, perhaps ultimately isn't propositional. It may be personal, as in an encounter with a personal God, mirrored in our relationships with each other. This means that love poetry, erotic poetry, poetry that addresses the rifts and fractures in those relationships can also be a response to the religious. I think science is also rich, even essential territory for post-secular poetry. As John Lennox was referring to earlier, there's no great divide um, between the, the, the metaphorical world of science and the metaphorical world of religion. Far from being opposites, they're both at heart concerned with questions of truth and falsehood. Both are grounded in narratives, both searching for meaning and purpose in the world, both constantly shifting and contested. Above all, perhaps science can, like theology, tell us extraordinary and moving things about ourselves. Science in poetry comes with its own concerns, too. Science shifts. But even disproven scientific ideas can be profound and true to elements of human experience in the context of a poem, as John Donne's poems, often based on redundant science, continue to demonstrate. Needless to say, there are many other areas of concrete shared experience, including the poetry of place, dwelling, home, which is one of the most fertile and urgent, opening as it does onto our current ecological concerns. These and other areas are being widely explored by contemporary poets. In Christian theological terms, the concrete is also the incarnational, and as such, a proper place to engage with ultimate values. So in conclusion, from a literary perspective, these are interesting times. I've just written a book of poems called Dry Psalter, and it is, in part, a kind of Psalter. But although I'm not hiding the fact that there's a nod to the Psalms in this book, hence the title, it's important to me that it can stand completely apart from the Psalms too. If a reader, a reader of these poems has never read a single Psalm in their life, then I certainly feel they're missing out. But they won't find it a barrier to reading the poems in this book. Literature is neither a wholly secular nor a wholly sacred space. And much as the collapse of biblical literacy is a cultural and educational loss, it's also for contemporary writers an opportunity and a challenge. If Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right in his prophetic call for a new language of Christianity to meet a new age, then writers must be in the vanguard. Writers can and will find new metaphors for Christian beliefs, experiences and longings. And if that means non-biblical metaphors, then so be it. Poetry resists instrumental treatment. If you try to put it to the service of a belief system, it tends to <laughs> turn around and be bad. <laughs> it, just, it just fails. So you can only write from the perspective you have. And part of my perspective, as someone who lost his atheism in his 20s, um, is, is um, a, a long and complex journey through Christianity, trying to make sense of my beliefs. Um, I felt, partly in discussion uh, earlier as we sat down on the panel, that there's something um, I ought to fess up and actually read a poem from this book, having talked about it and pontificated about other poems. So this is a poem from Drysalter, and I'll finish with it. Thank you for listening. Drysalter is a book of 150 poems, um, hence the Salter reference. And um, because I'm full of biblical metaphors, uh, these poems are as well. But this is one, I think, that picks up from biblical metaphor and, 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 and moves on from it. All these poems are 15 lines, by the way. I decided to take the numerological twist a stage further. 150 poems are 15 lines. Not quite sonnets. This is called On Easter Saturday. Hell is being harrowed as we speak. 10,000 leagues below us, a colossal fish with xylophonic teeth is filleting the deep. And in its wake comes all this. 
Blossom pulls from orchards, streams from peaks. The sun, though weighted by the days it freights inside, is drawn into a lake and hauled down to the darkest ocean trench, since depths are being harrowed as we speak. And though I know it makes no sense, I feel, if I stand still, its tinfoil scales, the blinkless eye, the muscle of its tail, and all that I once took as mine is flensed from me, a thankless healing, leaves me wondering if I am sea or fish, if harrowed hell is me, if I am cursed or blessed. Michael, thank you very much indeed, and to the rest of the panel. I was looking recently at some of the origins of everyday phrases that we use and struck by the remarkable influence of the Bible on our language. My brother's keeper, give up the ghost, the skin of my teeth, a drop in the bucket, the writing on the wall, the salt of the earth, eat, drink and be merry, all biblical phrases, all things to all men, labour of love, mm. A stitch in time saves nine. No, that's not actually in the, <laughs> in the scriptures. But it is remarkable, the influence of the scriptures on our language, art, literature, music. How can you begin to engage with Handel or Foray or John Taverner or James Macmillan without some understanding of the intellectual framework that the scriptures Offer us. So we've got an opportunity now to um, talk into some of the themes that the panel have raised for us. And I, I thought, Christina, it'd be good to kick off with you. We'll open to the, this to the floor shortly. But it struck me as, as you were speaking, and to be honest, this morning also as, as John was addressing us, as to whether things really are so bad. Um, uh, Michael talked about the Enlightenment as a failed experiment. I think that was the phrase that you used, and certainly as I look at statistics into the future, by 2050 it said 80% of the world's population will subscribe to some sort of religious belief system, in fact particularly Islam, Christianity, <coughs> Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, that doesn't seem to be the secular future that often uh, shapes our discourse in, in these sorts of environments. Can't you get him across? You get him across. That's what I'm intending to do. So. Um, I think I think that that is a very dangerous complacency. I think that we are sitting in the House of Commons, where only a few months ago, a man who has now joined the Number Ten Policy Unit, Boris Johnson's brother Joe, said, "I want to push through a change in our parliamentary proceedings and drop the prayer because." None of the politicians who I know, who I, Joe Johnson, know, feel comfortable opening Parliament with a prayer. Now, you may talk about 80% of humanity um, subscribing to some belief system, but when we face the steady and stealthy erasing of Christianity, whether it's rights, language, um, symbols from public life, I think we are in danger of what Michael quoted Seamus Heaney as saying, of hollowing out our minds, of thinning out that religious presence, and in our case, that Christian presence, from everyday existence. And I think we would be a poor country for it. I think we would be uh, a lost people for it. And, uh, and I do not want to turn the other cheek at this point. I do not want to be smug and slack. And Christina, on that, do you see the principal challenge as being the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, or do you see it as a challenge that arises from our need to create some sort of plural public square where it's in fact the existence of a more diverse religious culture that is creating some of the difficulties that we're in at the moment? I think we should blame 
two Josephs, Joseph Stalin and Joseph Fletcher. Joseph Stalin because with totalitarianism, a misunderstanding, a misconception of authority was sown. All of a sudden, people were thinking, what authority does is it strips us of any choice to lead our own lives, to follow our own beliefs. Authority elided into authoritarianism because people saw the oppression of free will. And I think that that, that period of 20th century history has a lot to answer for. Individualism could never have become the creed that it became if it hadn't been for, uh, you know, if it hadn't been a reaction to that kind of historic suppression and oppression. The other Joseph is Joseph Fletcher. Joseph Fletcher came out with the um, situation ethics in 1967, 67, something like 67. And it was a brilliant, um, subversive term, and it just dazzled uh, intellectuals and liberals, and you know, I would have been dazzled if I'd been old enough to read it at the time. And what it said was, there is no absolute truth. There is no evil, there is no goodness, there's no right, there's no wrong, except if you see it in the context. So. Everything was created by you. You, in your context, could make a choice that was wrong, you know, if not in that particular situation, but uh, the situation forgave it and absolved you. And I think that that was such a, um, a tempting ethics that it did you know, sweep all in its way. And I think it was a dangerous moment. It was, um, it was obviously very easy to fall for it. And I think <coughs> we are still being taught a lot of situation ethics when actually we should, we should remember that there is such a thing as moral absolutes. Thank you. Um, Michael, uh, Christina has talked about the importance of re-engaging people with the scriptures. Mm. And as you were speaking, and particularly as you read your poem mm. at the end, I wondered whether you could uh, imagine a way in which the arts, perhaps poetry in particular, mm. but the visual arts too, and, and other forms of art, uh, provided a way to engage people in the scriptures. We've talked mm. about the mm. role of the scriptures in mm. shaping literature and mm. art, but in our context, do you see that the arts might re-engage people and their imagination in the scriptures and in the, the narrative mm. of scripture? Of course they can, but they're not a reliable way of doing it um, for, for a number of reasons. I think, um, as I say, there is this, uh, this sense in which poetry, and I, I know composers who would say the same and um, visual artists who would say the same, uh, to, to, to make a new piece of art is an extraordinary kind of lie detector of a process. Mm. Um, you have to follow the impulses, which are usually not straightforward. Uh, so a poem doesn't start with an idea that I need to reflect this theological idea behind this, this psalm, um, and I'm hoping that it will move people and turn people back to the psalms. That will be a bad poem. There's no two ways about it. it. It comes from a combination of a phrase. Like that poem there started with this, um, uh, the, the, the idea of, well, what, what does Easter Saturday mean now? And the, the sense of the harrowing of hell being such an odd, odd phrase and odd piece of the story, the Easter story. And then the idea of, of twisting that line so it becomes like a, a piece of news speak. Hell is being harrowed as we speak, mm. live. Um, the oddness of that. And then, and then of course, you, half of what you're doing is picking up on the musicality of that. So speak leads you on to the next rhyme. So what I'm trying to say is that the, the making of art is complex and cannot be used simply instrumentally. Um, I know that's quite a purist romantic view, but I, I think it holds. Having said that, once art is made, if people find um, uh, 
Christian truth or resonance in it, or uh, biblical resonance and power in it, then of course uh, the performance of that, the teaching of that, the reading of that, uh, can have a powerful influence on people, and still does. I mean, um, John Donne uh, hasn't been around to give readings of his own work for a very long time, and still has a profound effect, those holy sonnets on, on people. And not just holy sonnets, the early love poems, and the way that he interchanges the metaphors between the two periods of his writing. You know, erotic holy poems and um, mm. spiritual love poems. Um, there are still people I talk to who are thinking more deeply about faith, I'd possibly even coming to faith, certainly moving towards it because of an encounter with Dunn. Um, musically, there are plenty of cases of it. However, the one big caveat to all this, um, John Taverner was mentioned earlier, James McMillan, who's a long-term friend and collaborator, um, as, as he's always saying, as James McMillan is always saying, the concert hall is a secular space. Whether you like it or not, it's a secular space. Um, he, one of his most famous pieces of music, Seven Last Words from the Cross, is an extraordinarily beautiful piece of music. I don't know if you know it, but that was one of the things that first brought us together as a working partnership. It was his discovery of some of my poems, my discovery of that piece of his music. It's sublime. Um, but I've been in concert halls where Seven Last Words for the Cross are performed, and people go and chat in the interval, and they're talking about the, the, the timbre of a particular voice or how the, the strings aren't quite coming across. and So it is possible to experience art, uh, no matter how profound its, its content in terms of theology or, or again, to use that awful word, spirituality, um, and get nothing but an aesthetic experience from mm. it. Well, lots of paintings. I mean, if you yeah. go to the National Gallery, you know, it's not every virgin on the rock that that catapults you into a, a, a thinking about God and the Bible. Exactly. You just yes. look at it as, as a beautiful, beautiful Da Vinci. Yes, I mean, you see, you, you see people walking around, especially the, um, is it the Sainsbury Wing, which has all, I mean, it's yeah. just wall after wall of sacred art. But it's not being perceived as sacred art because the gallery is a secular space. Mm -hmm. Now, for some people, some maybe one image will punch through. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. uh, but it's... Again, the arts, the arts are complex and slippery, and as soon as you try to tie them down to a kind of instrumental use, they tend to resist it. Um, I think, I think... And yet sorry. Milton, mm -hmm. Milton definitely, I mean, didn't Milton write Paradise Lost with a very didactic... Um, to explain the ways yeah. of God to man. It's interesting. We could talk all morning about this. Cause, I mean, and Milton is an interesting, interesting case because, yes, he did set out to do that. But actually, what I think he was doing, that poem is almost more political than it is mm. religious. He, mm. you know, he, was, um, he was writing in a moment where um, the, the, the project, the great project for the reformation of Britain had collapsed. Uh, he saw chaos all around him. This was an old uh, um, and sick man disappointed and what he's trying to do is go right back to how do we get to the, into this mess mm -hmm. and if I go back to the fall I can explain for myself and for other people how we got into this mess so it, it feels like an exploratory process rather than the outworking of it you know I'm going to tell everyone what happened. Well let's come back well I'm sure we'll come back to Milton <coughs> and others just Matthew before we um, bring in the audience I um, I'm struck by you in your in your role as an anthropologist. You you spent some time studying me and colleagues and, and others, and then you went on to do a very similar exercise with the British Humanists Association. Um, I wondered in, in hearing this conversation, but also earlier, what um, some of our friends from the British Humanists Association would make of it. Whether their analysis of the way things are would be similar to ours, albeit from a very different perspective, or whether they would profoundly challenge some of what we've heard this morning. What's your take mm. on that? Okay, well, as long as you, you know, said with a caveat that I'm not speaking on behalf of them, nor am I of them. Perish the thought. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I mean, I think they disagree with just about everything that Christina said, but that's probably not, I mean, she's regularly uh, tussling with Andrew Copson in, 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 uh, in various fora. Um, 
uh, I mean, I think, you know, if, if we were to switch this around to, to a kind of BHA perspective, I mean, I think, you know, but, but maybe, even a, maybe even a Christian perspective, I mean, picking up on some of the things that, that Michael has, has mentioned. Um, how do you read Milton, right, without knowing the Bible? Of course, another way to phrase that question is, why is no one reading Milton? I mean, who's, who reads Milton? Yes. You know, um, uh, you know a few kids at, uh, at Oxbridge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know, Terry Eagleton's student somewhere. <laughs> yes, but, yes. I mean, you know, people don't read Milton. People don't listen to Haydn. Or if they do, they don't know they're listening to Haydn. So, I mean, the, the question, you know, and, and if we were to have, if this was, a, you know, the, the national uh, uh, breakfast for, uh, you know, um, the promotion of English literature, if we could come here and say 45% of the population reads Paradise Lost, it would be a party all day. Uh, I mean, so, so I think it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's partly a perspectival issue, but it's, but it's also a question, again, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm partly saying this just because studying Bible Society and indeed any, any uh, studying the BHA, um, I, I'm always kind of asked for advice on what to do, and I'm not a consultant, right? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist, but I think my natives never really understand that I don't ever have advice because I'm a I'm a relativist, right? I mean, uh, oh, you can look at this, you can look at it this way. That the anthropology is a very relativist field. But if I were to be, uh, if I were to be a consultant, if if you were to ask me for advice, I mean, I would, and I, but I think this is really what, say, Bible Society and its projects, and indeed many. Uh, other Christians are, are wrestling with. Should you get more people uh, interested in reading Milton and then get to the Bible, or should you get them interested in reading the Bible and then get to Milton, or indeed the Archers? I mean, you know, and this should you approach, should, should, are we approaching it backwards? Right? Should we try to get them captivated by the stories of the Archers, or indeed Justin Bieber? who, you know, if I remember, and I, I don't follow this, but I think had a big kerfuffle in, in Israel recently, and then also at, at yeah. Anne Frank's house. I mean, yeah. he's ripe yeah. for deconstructing with your 10-year-old and then working back. So rather than starting with the Old Testament, start with Justin Bieber okay. and work backwards. Well, let's bring in the audience at this point. I, I think we should establish that more people listen to the Archers than read Milton. But once that's been established, let's bring the audience. So um, some questions here. Yes, um, uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll take three at once. So Sally, starting uh, with you, then the gentleman over there, and then you. Thank you. So Sally, yes. Hi. Um my name is Sally Hitchner. I'm a university chaplain, a uh, bit of a theologian, and I do some broadcasting, although in a much low-key way than you do. Um, well, my question, and maybe it's a comment, um, is I was just listening to what you're saying, and, and really in awe of a lot of it, but I was wondering, uh, what does it mean for the word to be made flesh today? And, and thinking in terms of my context, working with young adults uh, in a university setting, um, but also in the media, I'm constantly thrown into situations where people don't realize how much of the Bible that they're engaging with. And, you know, I was asked to review a book a few years ago, and it was uh, a, a summary of what it, the strapline was the best bits of the Bible, and the bits that you should read, so David and Goliath, the sort of bits like that. And it struck me, this is awful, that, that actually what they're doing is, is editing the Bible, and perhaps actually <laughs> editing out their favorite bits. And I'm just wondering whether actually there is more bits to come out through a different culture than perhaps we've drawn out through previous cultures. Uh, in particular, I was um, thinking of, there was a, a famous uh, version of Gangnam Style done by the French Catholic Church, which was very controversial, and I think the people involved got into a lot of trouble. But, they, um, but one of the phrases was, l'esprit est mon, mon wifi, so the spirit is my Wi-Fi. Um, or, or perhaps, actually, in the LGBT community that I'm engaging with on campus, one of their big slogans is, love is patient, love is kind. And whatever we think about you know, their morals or what they're doing, but actually they're picking up on scripture all over the place in ways that are unusual and are not part of my standard vocabulary of scripture. So I'm just wondering whether scripture is being born again. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. And then the gentleman... Yes. I suppose, uh, just as a bit of context, I would see myself as a bit of a jobbing Christian, really, and the context in which I work, I'm a medical director of a, a small challenge trust which uh, is, has got safety concerns, and 
I'd like to pick up on a word that Matthew used, culture, and the Francis Inquiry spoke of two triplets of culture. Mm. One was fear, secrecy, and bullying. The other was open, openness, transparency, and candor. And I recognize both of those. And obviously, as an executive uh, member of uh, the Trust, I'm responsible for culture. My heart leapt when uh, you actually gave us some poetry. And uh, there's something <coughs> deep within me that responds to poetry. Uh, and I struggle <laughs> with the whole shaping of culture. I'm aware of the tensions within the organization that I work in. And I'm also aware of a term of chronological snobbery, that actually we think that what is new is right, but actually we miss out on the depths of our tradition and history. And I suppose what this is is almost a, a kind of a glimpse of your world and your wisdom uh, in the struggle that I have in generating and helping shape a culture of 2,000 people but actually affecting a population who looks to the organization for its health. But it's in the bigger context of the economic situation we're in and the, the whole nature of what is public and what is private. And it's a difficult place to be, I can tell you. Thank you. And then the lady, yes. For me, the question is, what is the role of scripture in 21st century Britain? And I don't think the role's changed. I think how it's packaged. It's happened in the past. You know, scripture was presented before people could read through songs. Um, it was presented in stained glass windows. Um, my challenge is looking particularly within the Salvation Army, how we can communicate that to young people, to teenagers. We live in a digital world. You know, the iPhone, the iPad, it's kind of on their hand. Maybe we need to look at how it's translated into, into that world. But I'm also the mother of three children. I have a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 11-year-old. My challenge with them every day is how can I communicate the scriptures to them before they could read, before they could speak, now that they can read. How do I do that? Well, I've discovered my 10-year-old doesn't like to read the Bible because it's boring. But he loves Jesus, okay? And I mean that he does, not because I've told him, but because he does. But he reads cartoon books. I have searched high and low, and I've found a cartoon Bible, and I can't get him to put it down. So the role of scripture hasn't changed. I don't read Milton. I was a literature student. That's what I studied at university, but kind of that's behind me now. But, you know, what is the role? I don't, li I'd fare, who's he? Do you know? I didn't find the Bible in that. But I do find the Bible. I find Jesus. I find God in Michael Jackson that I might listen to. Dare I say it, even in One Direction songs that my daughters listen to. You know, what is the role of scripture? It hasn't changed, but it's how we Great. communicate that Thank that you. might have. Great. Okay, we've got three there. Let's um, maybe start off, uh, perhaps Christina, um, to begin with, just on that really, in terms of, I mean, part of what we're picking up here is that there's an issue to do with a reading culture generally that perhaps doesn't exist in the way it did. Um, but then we also had Sally's point about the word made flesh and also this challenge of engaging in culture. So, Christina, do you want to uh, kick off and then Michael, followed by Matthew? Well, I think that what the Bible, as in the Bible light, the television series showed, is that if we get access to the Bible, if we do it properly, or even a bit sensationally, a bit Walt Disney-ish, it is an addictive read, it is a compelling view, it touches the heart and inspires. So what I would argue <coughs> is, whether it's newfangled, or it is straight down the line, whether it is saccharined, or it is um, sexed up, another Alistair Campbell story. Um, <laughs> the Bible will be a hit. We just need to have access. We need to be able to have it in the public domain without having equality laws or discriminatory laws or um, some kind of legal or um, cultural ban on its presentation or on our, you know, our use of symbols that remind us of um, the greatest story ever told or our, uh, our use of rituals. So I would argue that as long as we can secure and safeguard a public 
presence. It's done. The game's over. It's in our, it's in our court. But we have to protect that public space, and that is where we're in danger. And that's why Paul got me really cross earlier on, because if we don't watch it, it will be taken from us. Thank you. Michael? I agree with a lot of what's been said, and I do think that the, the, the roots of this um, come, come back to education and early education and the, and the Bible being part of it. The only thing I would add... Um, is we, we haven't really questioned what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible and the importance of the Bible in this context yet. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the phrases um, that you were reading out earlier, Paul, are, are from a particular version of the Bible. Um, now, there's a sense in which uh, you, you have to somehow drill down into what it is important, what is important, what, it is, what is it, particular phrases, uh, well, we'd all reached. I imagine in here there's probably five or six different versions of the Bible, different translations represented in terms of which you would feel your particular Bible is that you would read or that you would use in church. Um, is it particular stories? Is it particular characters? How are they affected by the different translated ways in which we read them? So, what what is at the heart of what we're trying to preserve here? And there's there's a I, th I think a worry that in trying to preserve it, we try and preserve and. Um, almost kind of, to use extreme language, make an idol of a particular representation of the Bible. Um, this was brought home to me in the, in, in the research for this book, Dry Salter of Poems. I, um, I looked into Psalms and Psalm translations. These poems aren't particularly mapped onto the Psalms, certainly not Psalm by, you know, poem to Psalm. But there's a shadow of a lot of themes and uh, metaphors in the Psalms in the book. So I had a look and I read numerous translations of the Psalms. And as you probably know, the leading Ameri um, Hebrew scholar in the world at the moment, Robert Alter, who's in uh, New York University, um, has a couple of years ago come out with a new full edition of psalm translations that are as close to the original Hebrew in English as you can get. And they are dramatically different from the King James version of the psalms that we most use, to the extent that a metaphor revolving in the King James around the word soul in the Hebrew, revolves around the word throat. You know, dramatically different, much more uh, visceral, much more rooted in the body and physical experience. Now, when you change the metaphors, you change something quite profound. Um, so, that, I'll just throw that into the mix. I think, I think that, um, that the Bible itself, when we start banding it around as something we all, we all know what we mean, is um, not quite as clear-cut as it looks. Thank you. Uh, Matthew, any? Yeah, um, I mean, that, that's a, 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 a very good point. I think, um, uh, you know, I, th I think you quoted William Carlos Williams earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, ideas only in... Only no in ideas but in things. No ideas but in things. Uh, I mean, this is how humans uh, operate. Again, speaking as an anthropologist, mm. um, you know, we, 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 we to, to articulate these very abstract conceptions and indeed it was very interesting for me to hear the the the, the, the prayer this morning closing about uh, coming to know the invisible coming to know the unknowable um, we we have to we have to objectify we have to materialize these abstract concepts these transcendent metaphysical spiritual and all sorts of other words that fail us uh, into things and uh, I think you're absolutely right to stress that, uh, you know, the, the Bible, uh, you know, again, and Christina and others might have a different idea. How many books in the Bible? Well, it depends who you ask. Uh, so clearly we're, we're talking about different things. But we're also, we're, we're not talking about leather-bound objects anymore. Um, I mean, I was very struck in, in my three years of studying Bible society, and I, and I, 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 I focus mostly on the work in England, um, I rarely saw a Bible. I rarely saw a Bible, an actual leather object. But the people I was studying were doing Bible all the time. And in fact, that's how they talked about it. How are we going to do Bible? Not... How should we read the Bible? What does this chapter and verse, and the point about the bits, too, I think is a very important one, and it gets back to, to what I was saying earlier, the culture of consumption. Uh, you know, the, the Bible is a rule book or something that you can kind of pick and choose from. This is part of the problem. 
it's a whole life experience. Right? I mean, it's, it's not a book. It's not a book. So, um, I, you know, the, these are some of the issues uh, about how we, can, how we can recognize or locate scripture in the 21st century. Matthew, thank you very much. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. Thank you uh, so much for being um, present with us. Um, these, these debates are, are always fascinating. I, I think we've agreed that the influence of the Bible has been enormous. Um, I think we've agreed that there are challenges to engage people in our contemporary culture with the scriptures. And I think we're agreed that that's a task that is worth putting effort into. Um, of course, our focus has been particularly on Britain, but it, it's worth reflecting on the, the global perspective too. I'm very aware that we have just celebrated the publication of the 100 million Bible to be printed in China. Uh, that is an extraordinary uh, situation, so the world is changing very rapidly. I am indebted, I know um, you are, to our distinguished panel. Please would you give a very warm round of applause. I should say, I, I know it's, it's a bit cheek, I shouldn't really do this, but uh, Christina is obviously not only a distinguished writer and author, but I, I've seen her doodles, and she's a great artist. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. <laughs>